Modern. 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 We're prepping for a voyage. Modern. The force of an old-fashioned equals whiskey mass times bitters acceleration. Why don't you make that a double? Modern Bar Cart. What's shaking, cocktail fans? Welcome back to another episode of the Modern Bar Cart Podcast. I'm your host, Eric Koslick. This episode is part of our Bar Cart Foundations series, where we take kind of these deep dives into the most essential or pressing topics in the cocktail and spirits world. As opposed to our more long-form interview episodes, these episodes tend to be more medium-form, but they're extremely nutrient-dense. This is also a bit of a mailbag episode because it was inspired by a question from one of our listeners. Here at Modern Bar Cart, we get tons of emails and social media questions about cocktails, spirits, and home bartending, and we love this. So if you've got a burning question, don't assume that you're inconveniencing us by getting in touch. Just open up your email, send us a quick note at podcast at modernbarcart.com or hit us up on Instagram or Facebook at Modern Bar Cart. We will be happy, more than happy to help you out. Case in point, Hannah from Riverside, California, hit us up via email with an intriguing question. She said, hey, Eric. Huge fan of the podcast, hoping you might be able to help with a spirits-related question I just can't seem to figure out. Recently, my husband and I have been getting into brandies from around the world. Some of the fruit-based brandies we've run into say Eau de Vie on them, and some don't. I guess I'm just not quite sure how to distinguish a brandy from an Eau de Vie or if there's any real difference. Any help would be much appreciated. Well, Hannah, this is indeed an intriguing question, and it's one that required a bit of research on our end because we wanted to put together not just a sufficient answer to your question, but something that completely illuminates the nuances of O de V. So instead of an email response, you're getting a whole podcast episode. But before we take a deep dive into the world of O de V, I think it would behoove you to make yourself a drink. This week's featured cocktail is the Chufai, which is the national cocktail of Bolivia. You may remember that this drink was mentioned in our episode where I interviewed Carly Steiner of Himitsu, who is a huge fan of this drink, partly because of her affection for Singani, which is the base spirit. Singani, of course, is an eau de vie, and we'll talk about it and many of the other popular eau de vies later in this episode. But to make a chufly, you need, very simply, two ounces of Singani and four to six ounces of lemon lime soda or ginger ale. This is a highball drink that inhabits sort of the same space as the Moscow Mule. It's tall, cold, and extremely crushable. All you need to do is build this drink in a Collins glass or a pint glass filled with ice, give it a decent stir to chill it down and mix up the ingredients and enjoy. With simple cocktails like this, remember that the presentation and garnishes always make the day. So consider what you've got growing in your herb garden or perhaps if there are any fruits or berries in season that can help add your own personal flair to the cocktail. And now that we've braced ourselves for this globetrotting journey through Eau de Vie with a refreshing drink, let's charge right in. 
The word eau de vie is French for water of life. And this French term has become something that's called a proprietary eponym for unaged spirits from around the world. And what is a proprietary eponym? It's kind of like what happens when a specific example of something replaces the more generic example, like Kleenex replacing tissues or Band-Aid replacing bandages. Most countries or regions of the world have their very own names for the spirits that they distill. And interesting enough, many of these names mean roughly the same thing, water of life. But nonetheless, they all fall into the general category of eau de vie. Quickly looking at the history of distillation, it was the medieval and Renaissance alchemists who were absolutely responsible for building the first effective stills and who may be responsible for the whole water of life thing kind of indirectly. They, of course, were concerned with understanding the properties of the natural world and then finding ways to transform or transmute those properties for our benefit. These alchemists, incidentally, were also the keepers of the medicine in many cases. And so the original use for alcohol that was distilled in these early Middle Eastern and European stills tended to be medicinal as opposed to recreational. Fermented beverages like beer and wine and mead were already around and being used recreationally, so it didn't necessitate that spirits would be used just recreationally right away. They kind of you know, eased in gently. So if you think about it, you know, if you were sick back in those days and your neighborhood alchemist poured you a dram of some mystical kind of newfangled liquid that made you feel good and maybe even helped to cure what was making you sick, you might be inclined to give that thing a little nickname, something like, say, the water of life. Now, that's largely speculation on my part, but one thing is for sure. Distilled spirits didn't stay locked in the medicine cabinet for very long. As the technology spread across Europe and Asia, everyone developed their own version of eau de vie using whatever was growing in their neck of the woods. Those traditions grew and flourished, and today we have a global spirits market with a staggering number and variety of eau de vie. With that brief history in mind, I think the first and most essential point we need to address, based on Hannah's question is the difference between a brandy and an eau de vie. She said she and her husband were getting into brandies and she was noticing that some of these things they were picking up as brandies kind of had this classification of eau de vie. Now, when you're faced with a classification question like this in the spirits world, I find it useful to figure out which terms are more restrictive. In this case, brandy is a bit more restrictive at first glance because brandy can only be made from fruits, whereas there are certain classifications of eau de vie that allow for rye or grain distillates, depending on where you are and what particular type of eau de vie it is. But then you can also flip that on its head. There's one particular restriction in the eau de vie world that doesn't necessarily pertain to brandies, and that restriction is that all eau de vie must be unaged. And of course, we know right off the bat that many of the grape and fruit-based brandies from France, the really famous ones like Cognac, Armagnac, and Calvados, are aged in barrels. So in summary, we could do a bit of a Venn diagram here. Now try and, try and picture this in your head. 
On one side, let's say it's the right side of the diagram, we've got unaged spirits. And on the other side, we've got brandies. Now, these two circles are going to overlap when those unaged spirits are fruit-based. But then, they're not going to overlap when the unaged spirits are on the right side, not fruit-based, and alternatively on the left side, on the brandy side, when those brandies are put into barrels and aged. This sounds complicated, I know, but we've got a graphic up on the show notes page over at modernbarcart.com forward slash podcast that will help you figure out when a fruit brandy and an eau de vie are the same and when they're different. So if you had a hard time picturing what I just said in your head, head on over there and you can even download that graphic as a PDF and share it with the world if you'd like. Now, here's an interesting question. What is an eau de vie not? This is one of the places where things can get tricky, but one distinction I feel pretty comfortable drawing is that eau de vie are not flavorless. One thing we Americans tend to do is associate flavor and spirits with either barrel aging or the addition of botanicals, sweeteners, or infusions. Everything else is vodka to us, pretty much. However, the whole raison d'etre for eau de vie seems to be to preserve some character of the base, what was used to distill it, in the finished product without the addition of sugars, flavorings, or barrel aging. When it comes to production methods, this means that you're not going to see eau de vie being pumped out of the giant column stills that are used to distill most neutral grain spirits and vodkas. Instead, you'll see more traditional pot or alembic stills employed, which require more skill to operate. Another thing this means is that you're not going to see too many eau de vie being produced from grains because the flavors that you would essentially preserve or draw out from something like wheat, barley, or even potatoes or sugar beets, those flavors are simply less interesting when they're not aged than the more complex fruit flavors that tend to be distilled in eau de vie. That's why you see these base grains used mostly in vodkas and whiskeys, where the goal is generally either to strip the flavor out or, alternatively, to let the barrel do the work. So, you encounter the occasional grain-based eau de vie? Yes, rarely. But the litmus test is always to ask, in these situations, whether the original flavor of the base is being preserved or completely eliminated. And that can pretty much tell you whether it's more of a vodka type thing or an, an, a neutral spirit or an eau de vie. Now, at least in my opinion, there are a couple edge cases in this category. One of them would be aquavit, which is a Scandinavian eau de vie. And even though aquavit is a generic term that does indeed refer to certain unaged fruit brandies, eau de vie, it also encompasses many varieties that are infused with dill and spices, which means it's not a strict eau de vie. In those cases, it's definitely closer to a gin. And then there's cachaça, which is an unaged Brazilian spirit used most famously in the caipirinha cocktail, which is like a rustic mojito. Now, I'm just not enough of an expert on sugarcane to tell you if it falls into the category of those bases with great flavor that you want to preserve, or whether it's more of the flavorless variety of bases. But my sense is that 
in the end product, you might be getting more of the microbiome of the distillery on the palate than the characteristics of the cane itself. So probably less of an eau de vie, more of a neutral spirit. Now, Kshasa fans out there, please prove me wrong. Always happy to publish amendments to the episodes if I find I've told folks the wrong thing, but I'm going to follow my gut on this one and I'm still going to list Kshasa as an edge case. Finally, we've got Pochin and Moonshine, which are distilled unaged spirits from Ireland and the United States, respectively. Starting with Pochin, there's a couple reasons why I'm a bit hesitant to put it in the O de V category entirely. First, there are some variants that by law allow the additions of flavors and aging, which puts those varieties out of the running entirely. And second, the base grains it employs usually aren't the kind of fruity, flavorful things you see in continental eau de vie. But if you were to come across a pochine that doesn't attempt to bury the flavor of its base grain and is not aged, I think you could probably make an argument that it might qualify as an eau de vie. The same pretty much goes for moonshine. It can be made from almost anything. So... When a moonshine distiller here in the U.S. manages to capture the essence of his or her raw materials without additives, I think you've got an eau de vie. But it's usually a moot point. Here in the U.S., shine is shine and we ain't got no use for no fancy French classificators. Speaking of classifications, one trend in the European Union especially is to give geographic and other legal designations to distilled spirits, including eau de vie. And I should say this is not just distilled spirits. It's wines, it's beers, it's foods. They do this with pretty much anything you can consume. This has a couple of effects. One is that it necessarily restricts supply, which increases prices, right? We know basic supply and demand. Because if a spirit can only be created in a limited region, then there's a ceiling on how much can be made. And secondly, it increases prices by confirming the authenticity of the product, as well as via the enforcement of rigorous quality restrictions, mostly pertaining to ingredient sourcing and how long things must be fermented and or aged if we're talking about spirits. If you want to check out how these geographic designations are really heating up the global marketplace as our current administration is spearheading this crazy trade war, we're going to link to a podcast in the show notes page by an NPR economics program called The Indicator. That episode uses a cheese case study to show how these geographical designations, some of which are being enforced on O to V, can impact both producers and consumers around the world. Now, one last thing I want to do before we wrap up this episode is give you a summary of the world's most popular eau de vie, grouped by their base fruits. And we have an entire list of these over at the show notes page. So if you want to figure out what word I'm saying, how it's spelled, or if you just want a refresher uh, and you want everything in one place, again, head over to the show notes page. We've got that Venn diagram. We've got this list all there for you as a resource. We'll start in the world of grapes, which is probably the most dominant type of eau de vie in any country or region that produces a lot of wine. And this is mostly because the unused grape sludge that gets strained out of the wine, a substance called pomace, can then be distilled just like a mash used to make a grain-based spirit. In France, of course, we've got eau de vie, right? That's like the Kleenex, the OG eau de vie. In Italy, 
This same spirit distilled from different grapes is called grappa. And in Spain, it's called aguardiente, which translates to fire water. Heading over to the New World grape producers, we've got Pisco and Singani from Peru and Bolivia, respectively. These growers tend to operate at high altitudes, right there in the mountains, and you'll often hear it said that this really helps the distillers preserve the qualities of the grape in the finished product. Then in Greece and Albania, you've got Raki. Now here's another spot where it gets a little tricky. For the most part, in Greece and Albania, Raki is precisely an eau de vie by the definitions set out in this episode, but in other places in the Mediterranean, like Turkey, Raki refers to a sweetened anise-flavored drink. So you've got to be careful depending on what country you're in. This is also true in the Balkans, where any sort of eau de vie, grape or otherwise, is called rakia. So just throw an A on the end of raki. Finally, a nod to the grape-producing regions in Africa. In Sardinia, the grape-based eau de vie is called abardente. Moving on to the fruit-based eau de vie, there are some pretty fun and noteworthy ones. In Germany and Switzerland, you've got Kirschwasser, which is cherry-based. It literally means cherry water. You've got Poire Williams in France, which is pear-based. And in Eastern Europe, you've got Slivovitz, which is distilled from the damson plum. I've actually had the chance just randomly to try Slivovitz once, and I, I thought it was very yummy. Last but not least, we've got the sort of all-encompassing brandies and eau de vies that can be made from any number of distillates. And with these, oftentimes what you'll see is that they'll have that generic name accompanied by the flavor that it kind of invokes. A perfect example is schnapps, which is another German, Swiss, Austrian product that can be made from any number of fruits. And then we've got the Eastern European palenka, if you're in the Czech Republic or Slovakia, or Palinka, if you're in Hungary. Same deal, these are all kind of generic names with variants that can be made from different bases. In Armenia, this category is called Ogi. I may be pronouncing that completely wrong. And finally, in India, Sri Lanka, and the Middle East, the generic name for your unaged distilled spirits is Arak, which can be made using anything from palm hearts to coconut. We've got this entire list of countries and their respective eau de vie available on the show notes page, as I mentioned. So please head on over there, check it out if you need a refresher on what bottles you should be looking for on your next trip abroad. By the way, here at Modern Bar Cart, it is our policy to always accept weird foreign spirits in the name of research. So if you happen to pick up a bottle for us, we wouldn't turn you down. Returning to Hannah, you all remember Hannah, right? She's the one who opened this whole can of worms. I hope this episode has effectively demystified the difference between brandies and eau de vie. And if you were hoping for more of like a one paragraph answer rather than an entire podcast filled with Venn diagrams, alchemists, and strange sounding foreign spirits, I guess all I can say is, I'm sorry, we got a bit carried away. That's it for this episode, but we'll catch you next time right here on the Modern Bar Cart Podcast. Cheers. Hey everybody, thanks for listening. If you enjoyed this episode, there's two big things you can do for us here at Modern Bar Cart. One would be to tell your friends and family if you think they'd enjoy listening to us talk about cocktails. And if they don't download podcasts, they can always stream our episodes on their desktop directly from the show notes page 
at modernbarcart.com. The other thing you can do to help would be to head on over to iTunes or wherever you download your podcasts and leave us a review. Five stars are great, but we're more interested in your feedback. And the beauty is, the more reviews we have, the easier it will be for other folks out there to learn about our show. We're trying to start a cocktail revolution here, and by spreading the word, you're helping us fight the good fight. You can always reach us by emailing podcast at modernbarcart.com if you're looking for cocktail or bartending advice, or if you're a pro who would like to pull up a mic and be interviewed for all to hear. Also, definitely follow us on Instagram and Facebook at Modern Bar Cart for cocktail porn, recipes, and entertaining tips. And keep an eye out for new product releases and special offers, which are happening all the time. We love our listeners, and we really enjoy giving you exclusive discounts and sneak peeks at our latest and greatest cocktail projects. This episode may be over, but for you, the mixological fun and adventures are just beginning. So remember, folks, drink responsibly and experiment boldly. This episode was made possible with editing and production assistance by Samantha Reed. An excellent question by our listener Hannah in Riverside, California, and one badass Venn diagram by yours truly. This has been a Modern Bar Cart production, copyright 2018.